0: Hello and welcome to the University of London. My name is Will Eames and I am a member of the student experience team. We've recently started producing a series of podcasts for our students, alumni, and any other stakeholders who may be interested. We thought we'd pull together a collection of some of the highlights of the podcast that best introduce you, our new students, to the university. You'll hear from our Director of Student Services, the Dean of Undergraduate Law, a Senior Careers Consultant, a member of our Student Advice Centre team, and a postgraduate law student based in Buenos Aires in Argentina. To start us off, here's our Director of Student Services, Tim Wade, talking to the Associate Director of Student Experience, Joe Harris, about London and the main University of London building, Senate House, which is located in an area of the west end of London, known as Bloomsbury.
1: And and where did you do you feel that you got your interest in like the history of Senate House? Where do you think that started for you?
2: So I mean, I like I'm history. I'm interested in architecture anyway. I'm interested in London. I mean, I'm a Londoner, and I just love. I, I think it's the most amazing city. I think it is an absolutely uh, beautiful and uh, fantastic place. What I think is interesting about London is what uh, we have. What, what successive uh, whoever's been looking after it has tried to do is keep everything that is old has been preserved. We try mm. to keep all of that that has been there. It's had it's had its knocks in its time, but everything that is old has been been preserved. And then around it, we have built a very very modern city. And I think that that's if you if you if you wander through, if you actually wander through the square mile, if you wander through the city of London, that's where you notice it the most. Mm. You'll see it there where you've got like a, a Roman wall that's two thousand years old. You've got relics of the medieval ages. You've got Victorian buildings, you've got 16th century Georgian houses next to the Shard, next to the Gherkin, next to the Cheese Grater. They are built mm. side by side by side. So we have managed, and it's a, it's, a, it's feats of engineering beyond, you, you, beyond the imagination, but we've managed to put all of that old in with the new. And it is just a, a fantastic city that's kept that. It's a 2000 year old city and everything that could possibly be preserved has been preserved. And yet we haven't, we've used every single inch of space. Every bit of space is being used up. If you look across the city now, there are uh, crane upon crane upon crane. You won't you won't, yeah. you won't stop seeing it there. There's all new buildings going up. I come in through the city, through Liverpool Street. And in, in the space of the year, there's five new skyscrapers that have gone up. I look up each day and it's a new vista. There's something new to see there. So London mm. itself is just a, is a fascinating city. This area of London, where we are in Bloomsbury, just off mm. the way of Fitzrovia, is really fascinating. I think a lot of people miss it. Yeah, they, do. they may miss it. So down to the left, you've got the West End, you've got the Theatre Land, you've got uh, Oxford Street and Regent Street, you've got the Shoppers Paradise, you've got all of those things that you've got down there. Mm-hmm. Over to just just down the other way, you've got the city, you've got Holborn, you've got the Barbican, you've got those places there. And just off of that a little bit is Bloomsbury. It's completely different. It is uh, like a, a one large campus. There are so many of the University of London buildings around here. There are so many halls of residence. There are so many of the Georgian houses that are used for teaching, for seminars, and also for students, and and this uh, and and so it, it is a slightly, it's really quite different. The areas that surround us on it really are quite different. Um, it's beautiful. It's lovely. We've mm-hmm. kept all of the squares out. We, Our building looks onto Russell Square. That's the largest of the London squares. But around us is Tavistock Square. Around us is Gordon Square. There are those beautiful squares and gardens that have been uh, kept a- absolutely wonderfully. And you've got the Jordan houses that surround them. So the area of Bloomsbury and of Fitzrovia is, is very unusual. Yeah, there is a student vibe. There's lots of young people. You, see, you feel that around there, but it's quiet. It's got a quieter pace and it is almost like one large campus and there, are like back in the, in the middle of it you've got these two fantastic buildings you've got the British Museum you've got the mm-hmm. British Museum that is slightly older than us built back in the 20s you've got that which is almost like a palace in itself if visitors to it can't believe that it, it's actually a museum you've got that marvellous icon there biggest uh, attraction for london in uh, this the largest tourist attraction in london and we are uh, uh, completely next door to it we, we we follow on from that so you've then got the senate house building and and, and the surrounding parts of that in there so beautiful site beautiful area um, and, and, and it is just a. It, it isn't. It's an iconic building itself. It's starting to become, I think, one of those ones that will go up on the posters. It's coming up like well, you've got the St Paul's and you've got the mm. uh, the British Museum, and that we're starting to become one of those things that is copied. It's getting. It's, it's getting more famous, I think.
1: When you do your tours, Tim, um, what what part of the building do you love? Sharing the most, what bit of it for you? What,
2: what, what you try to do. So we do a lot of tours for students. We're always wanting to welcome students to their yes. university. We want them to come to their campus. They may have studied uh, thousands of miles away, and we want to welcome them to here. Uh, we also do an open house tour. We have uh, a London has a, play, a, a day where all of the, its iconic buildings are open, and we we, we, we participate in that. When mm-hmm. I do a tour, though, you try to make each one a little bit different. You try mm-hmm. to make one each one a little bit different, and your audience will be different. They will want to hear about different things. So. Some you can tell will want to hear about history and architecture. And some will want to be about the history of the university. Some will want to hear about the history of the students and those people who've passed through them. So each one is is, is, a, is a tiny bit different. Mm. Um, the most popular room is the senate room which is is, is a, a is an older fashioned victorian style room which is a very heavy walnut walls and very heavy leather furniture it's not my favorite that's let's mm. everyone else's favorite it's not necessarily mm. my favorite it's it's very different it's it's immediately different it looks more like a courtroom. it looks like the old bailey uh, my favourite is the Chancellor's Hall. The Chancellor's Hall cuts right underneath the building, and the library's on top of your head. And I think it's fascinating to stand right in the middle of the building in a very, very modern-looking room. It's 1930s Art Decor, but it looks completely modern. And you've got the two million volumes above your head. I always like that idea that you've got <laughs> yeah. this library, hopefully safely, standing still above your head. And that's that's my favourite part of there. I think that's just a it's, it's just an unbelievable room. It's one of those rooms that it's always cool. In the in the if we've got even when we get our thirty five degrees July days, you open the windows, the breeze blows through, and it's beautifully cool. And it sort of the 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 coolness sort of matches the room, mm. matches the feel of it.
1: That's wow. really great. Thanks, Tim. I'm going to put you on the spot one last time before you go. Can you give us three obscure facts about oh. Senate House that isn't published?
2: Anywhere, we don't think. Ooh, published. or not Published. Well, in 1933, we're, there were planning permission laws in London, as there are now. They're even stricter now. But there were, in 1933, there were planning laws. And no building was allowed to be taller than St. Paul's Cathedral. So St. Paul's Cathedral is the tallest building, and it's the, the religious iconic building. It was no, nothing was allowed to be taller than St. Paul's. So they built Senate House three inches shorter. <laughs> Senate House is three inches shorter than uh, St Paul's Cathedral. They pushed it to the limit. They could have gone, I suppose, one inch shorter, but they pushed it to the absolute limit. And uh, Senate House is three inches shorter, and it was it remained the tallest building until 1953, when the planning laws were relaxed, and suddenly everything shot up. Right. So Senate House is not the skyscraper that it once was, but it was it was at that time it was the tallest non just building, and it kept to its planning permission. Um, so that one's I don't I don't necessarily think punished, but published. Um, Senate House has a ghost. That's a rather ghoulish story, but Senate House does have a ghost. So Edmund Della was the principal of the University of London, and he was instrumental in seeing the Senate House building made. And in 1936, just before the building was due to open, he was injured in an accident here in one of the lift shafts, and he died three days later in hospital. It's Rather a tragic story, don't want to shared too much, but he was the principal who never got to see his building opened. Uh, the accident happened in one of the lift shafts down on the left hand side of the north block, and supposedly Sir Edwin Della Ghosts uh, haunts the lift shaft. We don't use the lift anymore, it's definitely closed off. There's been too many uh, strange happenings in there, particularly over night time. So uh, the, that lift is no longer used. But his name is still on. It's the cafe, the Della Hall, where we're sitting next door to the Mm. Della's. It was the Della Hall. Now it's Della's. And the staff cafe is named after Swedman Della. So although he never got to see it opened, he's still a part of the building. Hopefully his ghost is not there. Hopefully he's he's at peace, you know, and everything was fine. (laughs) But we have a lot to thank him for. And uh, it's nice to actually think that his name lived on. Mm. And uh, there is one fact that people may not know. So there is a war uh, memorial at the uh, back end of underneath the Crush Hall stairs. There's a war memorial stairs for for those members of University of London staff that were killed in the Great War and in the Second World War. And the war memorial carries a bronze casket on top of that. There's a bronze casket on the top of the war memorial. That casket is a replica of the time capsule that is buried underneath the foundation stone. So at the foot of the tower... Uh, The the foundation stone was laid by King George V in 1933 and his wife, Queen Mary. And he buried a casket underneath the foundation stone that contained uh, pieces of the day, uh, a a new minted penny of the day, a programme of the day, a newspaper of the day. The king himself buried that casket underneath the foundation stone and laid the foundation stone there. That casket is replicated on top of the war memorial. It's quite an interesting, it's a little bronze casket. It was made by Chubb. The lockmakers. Oh. Chuck, the lockmakers donated that to us and it's a, a nice little, it, it's really rather pretty and it's laid a long time there, alongside the War Memorial at the back of the stairs. So next time people pass through there, they can, uh, can remember that, that that's that, what that is as well.
1: That's fascinating. I don't want to
2: publish too many facts, but i have nothing no, to say no. on the tour. We've <laughs> <haven't laughs> got to keep some surprises yeah, back, we've got to keep some surprises back, but there are quite a lot of fascinating facts about the building. Next we'll hear from Gonzalo, who's a postgraduate law student
0: studying from Argentina. Gonzalo wrote a blog for the University of London website in which he mentions some personal challenges he'd faced during his studies. Here he explains how he dealt with them and offers some advice to other students who may be feeling the same.
3: When when I started um, studying, that very same year I had had anxiety issues. I I started to develop anxiety issues and those anxiety issues uh, went... um, I don't know how to say this but um they they went along with me during these years so i did not also have to deal with um, time management and coping with my local degree and my work but also with uh, these anxiety issues but um i am glad that i can say that i kind of overcame them and this year i am more, more centered and, focused and I think that this year I will start to enjoy uh, a lot more um, reading, the new, reading the materials and studying for exams. So we've, um,
0: we've touched upon mental health and well-being in previous podcasts, so um, have you got any advice for students that are dealing with the same kind of issues, anxiety or, or related issues?
3: Well, um, first, um, bear in mind that you, uh, if you feel anxiety, you will not solve it alone. You have to get professional help. And um, also, do not be afraid to be open with that with your friends and family because um, they, w- they, will w- they, they will love you uh, for what you are, not because you have a postgraduate certificate, this or that. They will love you for who you are, so uh, trust them and be open with them. And that is would be the fir- first step. Get professional help and talk with your parents and friends. And um, don't give up. You know, um, eventually uh, the dark clouds go away and the sun, the, the sky gets brighter. You know, that's that's what I talk about in my article of the in the University of London blog. Um, keep sailing on. Don't don't uh, don't give up. And don't don't be angry with yourself. Uh, because you feel anxious. Uh, it happens to everyone. Uh, it is part of the human nature. It is part of life. So don't, don't be angry with yourself.
0: What would your advice be to current or potential students um, either studying with us or thinking of studying with us? What, what would your, your summary of advice be?
3: Well, to those who are thinking uh, if they want to study or not, um, I would tell them to be clear about their motivations. You know, don't do the postgraduate, postgraduate certificate in law or the LLM just because you want to have a degree from the University of London. Think clearly about where are we going to go or what do you want to do. And to those who are studying right now, I would tell them to um, don't feel if you ever feel frustrated or feel that you are not going anywhere. Um, always think about your motivation. What took you to study with the University of London. And, um, you know, uh, Winston Winston Churchill had a phrase that said, if you're going to hell, keep going. Uh, Well, if you're going through hard times with your studies, keep going. Uh, You have five years to finish the degree. Uh, You have um, a lot of opportunities to, to sit for exams. It it gives you a plenty of of opportunities opportunities to to make things right, this portfolio. So that would be my advice. Keep sailing on. In
0: episode four, Joe spoke to Simon Askey, our dean of undergraduate laws, who
4: talks about how he got into law and his experience living in Papua New Guinea. Before I uh, studied law, I didn't start studying law until my 30s. I think I was 31, but I can't exactly remember. Um, uh, I worked, uh, I studied, first of all, theology, and I worked as a priest in various places. Uh, Most interesting, I suppose, in Papua New Guinea, uh, where I was a missionary teacher. And so that that took a, a big part of my life. I also worked as a prison chaplain and as a hospital chaplain, um, so I did have, uh, a variety of, uh, different jobs in my priestly life. And I worked very briefly only for a term in Ghana in the 1990s as well. So I knew something about the world before I came to this job.
1: I'm sure you did. And of those kind of previous incarnations in your career, what sort of stands out to you the most, um? Was it Papua New Guinea? Because I can imagine. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, I that think, would be really different to.
4: Yes, completely different to anything I'd ever seen. Um, there, you know, where I lived on the edge of the jungle, almost in the jungle, really, in a house made from local wood Um, the pigs slept beneath my house so that nobody could steal them and they were very good at keeping you warm at night (laughs) though not that you needed to be warm because it was too warm Um, but I think the thing that stuck out to me about Papua New Guinea was the fact that I'd gone to a culture to a place that I I actually had no idea about at all I I couldn't really understand their mindset and one thing that sticks out to me most of all was Often at night, I'd be really hot sleeping inside, and we had these things, they were kind of communal houses that we all sat around in to talk, and they're called house winds, which just really refers to the fact that the wind can blow through the side of the house. And so I would go out and sleep on this thing and just drop a mosquito net and sleep. And when I woke up, there'd be lots of other people sleeping around me because they hated the fact that people were on their own. So you were never, ever allowed to be on your own. And so if you went for a walk, you couldn't go for a walk on your own. This was absolutely alien to their mindset. So if you tried to sneak off on your own, you'd find that somebody else was sneaking (laughs) behind you. So you couldn't even sleep on your own.
1: So they just felt that if you were on your own, it was somehow like, Unhealthy for you? Is that- uh, they
4: felt that you, were, you weren't you were cared for, that you had Aww. to look after people. But I think probably deep down, and I again, I didn't really understand this, that they were scared that you would be attacked in some way, maybe by an animal or by a spirit from the jungle. So oh, that kind okay. of stuff I didn't really... And that's always always interesting because you really never, unless you come from a culture, you can observe it, but you can never really understand their kind of deep-seated beliefs. Next, we'll hear from Ben Jones from our student advice centre about how
0: they manage your inquiries and how best to find the information you need.
5: Um, We see ourselves as the first line of response in terms of student inquiries, whether that's in writing or via telephone calls. Um, We do try and answer most inquiries in the first instance if we can. But we do need to liaise with various teams around the university for more specialist knowledge and also to make sure that the student receives a, a full and comprehensive answer. To their inquiry rather than giving them half an answer.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I know that's really important for the students because normally when they're ringing you or uh, sending you um, a message, they sometimes tend to be quite worried because uh, about their um, exams, for example. I think we get a lot of inquiries around exam time, don't we?
5: Yes, at the moment we're extremely busy with exam related inquiries as we're just coming to the end of the deadlines for actually entering for the exams. What we do normally try and tell students, whether it's in regards to an examination entry or registration deadline, is that as long as you let us know what your problem is and get that logged before the deadline, we're normally able to to perhaps give a little extension to the deadline or to make sure that you do get entered in the end. That's brilliant. So I know
1: that you do receive inquiries throughout the year and there are peaks and troughs within the student life cycle exams being one of them, like you said, we get a lot of inquiries Um now about those but so sort of, can you tell us on average how many um inquiries that you you and the team have to deal with
5: i think uh, a good way to look at it is um w- what we normally say is an individual may deal with up to about 60 inquiries a day and um, we have about 10 staff in the student advice center so if you look at it like that we're dealing with sort of at least 3000 inquiries a week Um, And what used to be the quiet times has now changed due to the fact that we've had more courses and quite a variety of courses launch and they all have very different dates. So when we used to have a very quiet summer, that doesn't quite exist anymore. So what we're finding is that we're actually busier throughout the whole of the year. But hopefully this does alleviate some of the problems in what were the busier times.
1: And do you and the team recommend students get in touch with you um, a certain way to get their inquiry resolved?
5: It can be to do with the nature of the inquiry. Some inquiries are best dealt with directly over the telephone, but in many instances, we can't actually assist as we do need to have the request from the student in writing, in which case we normally suggest using the um, inquiry system.
1: Okay, and they can get to that via their portal, can't they, in the Ask a Question tab?
5: Indeed. You can access it through that and also through the main website at the bottom, or if you just type Contact Us into the search bar, it will take you to the page where you can log an inquiry. A good other point to make is that a lot of the information is actually contained on the website and can be found through using the search function.
1: What can our students expect once they've asked their question? So they go through the inquiry system, which I, I do think is obviously the best way because then they can lay out their inquiry um, and you can actually review from their student records what they've they've asked and, and go back through their records. What can they expect once they've sent that uh, their question in via the um, inquiry system?
5: What they can expect is that it will be resolved for them. It may take us a little bit of time to get to the bottom of whatever the problem may be, or to speak to the correct department who may also be suffering from high workloads, but that in the end, their inquiry will be resolved and resolved fully.
1: Um, And are there different approaches that your team must take if a student has a question that perhaps is fee related or if it's a technical uh, issue with the platform, for example, or something to do with their registration, should they do anything different?
5: The best thing to do is to provide us with a full overview of the situation and as much evidence as possible. For example, when we're dealing with technical inquiries, it's very helpful for the technical team to have screenshots of the issue that the student's experiencing. That way, we don't need to go back to the student and can answer them much quicker. Okay,
1: And you did mention that there are obviously, um, I think uh, there are frequently asked questions on the website. Is that right, Ben? And there are other resources that the students can use?
5: There is a knowledge base on the website and hopefully there will be more frequently answered questions posted soon.
0: An ongoing feature of the podcast is a quiz and it can get pretty competitive. Here, Joe and Tim from the Student Experience Team go head-to-head on a quiz about the University of London. (laughs) Okay, so in front of you, you should both have a buzzer. Joe, press yours. Tim, let's hear yours.
1: He's got the better buzzer, wheel. I'm unhappy. (laughs) So...
0: (laughs) When you know the answer to the question, buzz press, in. Press, press, buzz in. Don't shout see, out the Joe answer. See, Joe is so competitive. We, I know. So not, in, can gonna, we um, wait to hear the full question before we buzz okay. please? Or is that too much to no, ask? Okay. Can we
1: not, if we feel like we can interrupt, do you lose a point if you interrupt it you be in the university question. challenge
6: rules, I think. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it should it should be, you should take <laughs> a point off for university
1: <laughs> yeah. challenge. Okay.
6: okay. This
0: is a, a lovely one to get your brain round to start with. I feel
1: like Tim can see your screen. I can. <laughs>
0: I'm
1: so okay. competitive. <laughs> okay.
0: Right. Question one. According to the Higher Education Statistics Agency, HESA, statistics for 2016-17, the University of London is the largest university by number of students in the UK. What is the combined number of distance learning and campus-based students? It was me. It was yeah, Joe. Yeah.
1: 170,000.
0: Tim, are we going to have a stab? 120,000. Joe is correct. It's 161,270. Question two. The University of London has claimed to being the third oldest university in England after Oxford and Cambridge. But which university disputes that claim? Did you say in England? England. Uh, Not not the UK. Durham. You're right, (laughs) Joe. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) You are actually right. So Durham, uh, University of London was founded in 1836, right? Durham was officially founded in 1832 and began awarding degrees in 1837. However, London um, was the third university to be granted a Royal Charter, which was in 1836. The Royal Charter counts. Do you reckon, I'd say so. There's another two that are also involved in the dispute. You can get a bonus point if you can name either of them. Yes, Joe. Warwick. No. Oh! No. It's pretty old. It's a bit closer to home. It's a bit of a trick.
1: Closer to home? Yeah. As well, in the central precinct? Well, what
6: happened before University of London? King's and UCL. Yeah, yeah.
0: correct. So UCL was actually... Okay, of course. It was, was the first University of London. Yes. Um, And then uh, King's set up and kings actually received its royal charter in 1829 so um when i suppose when it became part of the university of london that was superseded so anyway joe gets the point okay i can't see this but she is so happy (laughs) don't take a
1: video of me doing this because (laughs) of my ultra competitive behavior
0: right i think tim might get this one well let's wait and see right fictional sherlock holmes sidekick dr james watson studied for his medical degree at which University of London Medical School? Yes, Joe. King's College. It's the wrong answer. Oh,
1: can I go again?
0: No,
6: <laughs> you're locked out until Tim has a go. Uh, St George's? No. Oh, St Bart's. It is Bart's. Yes. <laughs> That's what I meant. Oh no.
0: St. So yeah, he, he got his. Uh, I was going to say St Bart's first. Uh, Bart's in the London. School of Medicine and Dentistry, which is now part of Queen Mary. That's yes. right. <laughs> Queen, Mary. Queen, Mary. Queen Mary.
1: Yeah, you got that.
0: <laughs> that even featured in the TV show, The Modern Sherlock. Yeah, I've not watched them. I should. No, you should do. Yeah. Okay, so that is uh, 3-0. Yeah. Should I don't again. think Tim can come back from this. Oh, gosh. Okay. If I'm going
1: to whitewash this. Come
6: on. I, yeah, I need I'm doing it anymore. for the girls. I'm, I'm doing it for the girls. Okay, ready? Come on. Have you, have you prepped Joe?
1: No, he hasn't. <laughs> Unless I she's promised. got
6: access to my
0: private tribe.
1: <laughs> I, haven't. I no. promise you. I'm okay. just, let me just be clever.
0: To the nearest 100, how many graduands attended our graduation ceremony at the Barbican Centre in March earlier this year? That was Tim.
6: 1,100. Joe, do you want to have a go?
1: 1,196.
0: I'm going to give it to Tim. (laughs) It's 1,200, but... Oh, yeah, he's closest. She is closest. So, yeah, there were two ceremonies um, on Tuesday, the 5th of March, and around 4,000 people in total attended, including guests... Um, from over a hundred countries.
1: Hold on, why am I, why are you giving it to him? I was closest.
6: I know I will but say to he the was, nearest hundred. He, he was you, fast. You broke the rules of the game by saying a number that wasn't to the nearest hundred. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> I don't make the rules, but you know, I do adhere to them.
0: That's true. Right. Okay. Next question. There is a chance for Tim to equalise at least Uh-oh. eventually. Can you name? Two former South African presidents that have studied with us by distance learning. Joe again.
1: Nelson Mandela. Yep. Yeah. And.
0: She's in trouble. W-
6: Tim, gonna have a stab to get the points. Oh. Nelson Mandela. And.
1: Do I get half a point? No. He <laughs> doesn't rule we'll the
6: rose. Nelson Mandela and insert correct answer here. That's right, Tybo and Becky. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so Nelson Mandela
0: um, studied LLB famously yep. with us. And then Taibo and Becky, who immediately preceded him as president, studied economics with us. Tybo and Becky. Excellent. I'll edit that in afterwards. <laughs> Final question. Fingers on the buzzers. Which country produced the first ever University of London graduate outside of the United States? I hadn't quite finished the question. Go <laughs> on. Mauritius. Is correct. Well done. but oh, but going say Sri Lanka. Joe's won it. Well done, Joe. Oh, uh,
1: at least I've won it. That's yeah. good. I'm okay. Well Thank you, you so des-
0: much.
6: Well deserved. Thank you.
0: The student experience team works very closely with the Careers Group, University of London. The Careers Group has been providing career services to universities for over a hundred years and is the largest higher education, careers and employability service in Europe. Here Joe talks to Laura Brammer, who's a senior careers advisor with the Careers Group, about explaining and marketing your University of London qualification.
1: I suppose what would be really good to be able to tell our listeners in the podcast um, today is something that I know you've you have uh, released a webinar on, but it's it's something that's really um, prominent and pertinent in uh, a lot of our students' minds when they are doing a degree uh, with the University of London and they're doing that at a distance, and that is once they've actually graduated, how can they promote their qualification to recruited employers? Is it different?
7: Yeah, it's a great question and you're right this was this has been a topic that a couple of students have raised on an individual basis uh, and we have actually had a, a careers cafe around this topic and just for those listeners who aren't familiar with the career cafes these are small group discussions of up to about 10 students who all dial into the meeting it's kind of like a virtual meeting we're using using their mic so they don't only, only hear me speak as in a webinar but they also get to speak with each other and with me at the same time so it's a it's a great great sort of opportunity for a bit more focused discussion and this question around how do you explain and market the sort of distance qualifications that you, that you've got to, to recruiters is, is i think really pertinent and and one thing i said in the careers cafe and i'd look forward to expanding on a, on a webinar that we're going to explore in this topic as well is you know you've really got to pitch it As it is, as a strength, as an active choice. And Mm -hmm. particularly because of the nature of, specifically, I'd say, a University of London qualification. Because as your listeners probably know, the University of London is the oldest provider of distance learning in the world. So, it's not like you're getting a qualification from a you know brand new institution that's got no kind of legacy or uh, provenance in terms of its, its quality. Um, you're getting a qualification from a world-renowned institution that employers, be they massive multinational to small boutique startups respect, and recognize Mm -hmm. um but you're also accessing that education that qualification through a means of uh A kind of enhancement of your digital literacy skills as well. So, you're using your digital skills, you're using your use of tech, you're using a kind of nimble way of learning, which we know increasingly employers want evidence of. So, you can talk about your qualification, not only in terms of the content, you know, whether you're studying business or finance or law or computer science or any of the courses that we offer, but you're also able to talk about your qualification as an illustration of a whole other range of skills, and and that's the sort of digital literacy skills that, that I referred to. And
1: I suppose resilience as well, because, um, you know, it isn't always easy to do a degree um, flexibly and at a distance. And, you know, you've got to really, you know, use all the strength that you have to, you know, sustain and maintain all the hard work needed to get a degree. You know, other students that can just, you know, rock up to a um, a lecture and, uh, you know, and and have notes and so on, you know, a lot of our students are doing this, um, in various different ways. Some are studying at teaching centers, some are doing this totally independently while they're working and got other commitments. So, you know, resilience is such a big part of our student journey, isn't
7: it? And, um, Absolutely. I mean, I've really got that sense from not only the webinar discussions we've had, but also the individual work I've been lucky enough to do with the students. As you say, Joe, many of, of our students are balancing, you know, busy work life, busy professional careers, or busy busy roles in lots of different sectors. They might have other family commitments or commitments to their communities, and they're also weaving in their University of London qualification within all of that. And that in itself. I think is a huge strength. Uh, we know all the evidence is telling us that resilience is one of the qualities that employers are looking to recruit increasingly in the future. The one thing we can say with some certainty, and there's very little things you can say, <laughs> but is that you know the, the, the pace of change in the modern workplace is probably only going to speed up even more than it is now. And to cope with change uh, and not just cope with it, but to thrive in it, you need to be resilient. You need to be what we might describe as sort of anti-fragile and, and cope with new things happening and make, and being able to juggle lots of sometimes conflicting priorities. And I think as distance and flexible learners, that's a real strength that our students can, can articulate to, to employers to say that, you know, I know that I'm able to deal with not only technological changes, but also time management, uh, Uh, Thinking about how I can organize myself. uh, And I've been able to demonstrate that over the course of my qualification.
1: Before I let you go, I just wanted to ask you, what would be, if you could condense it down uh, for some advice or just like a a, a kind of a bit of motivation for our students, what would be your top tip for students that are starting out on their career paths?
7: Recognize own and articulate your brilliance. Oh, wow. You need to know what you're good at. You need to know how you know that you're good at it. And you need to tell people that you're good at it. And I think if you do those three things, then you're on the right path.
0: Famous Victorian author Charles Dickens once described the University of London as the People's University. In our Christmas episode, we spoke about his connection with the university and Christmas in London.
6: Apparently, you used to be able to skate on the Thames as well.
1: For real? Yeah. Oh, uh,
6: my It God. was a really interesting it article. It was obviously a lot about, colder back well, in the yeah. day. But they used to have winter markets held you know, on the frozen Thames. How
1: long ago was this? Do you know?
6: The illustration was looked pretty old. Like the 1800s so, yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. But did you know there was a
0: mini ice age from, for about 300 years, I think from the 1500s to about 1850? So a lot of the That's Victorian images of Christmas
1: when they're all they're and ice snowy it, it's right so it's right it was
0: definitely colder oh,
1: i never knew that yeah that's amazing
0: so a lot a lot of the imagery you see of london and christmas a lot of the ideas you have about london and christmas come from those victorian, victorian times. times and obviously a lot of our listeners will probably be familiar with a christmas carol which is um classic it's a classic uh written by charles dickens um, and that paints a very sort of well apparently that I think there's even a film about it, The Man Who Created Christmas, I think it's called, but it, it shows how his the way he portrayed Christmas has now become
6: the standard way that we view it.
1: Okay, I, the, can, I get that.
6: Uh, the um, the royal family at the time, they were the big big fans of um, some of the German influences over the season and all the Christmas trees and things like that were things that Victoria and Albert brought over to the UK. Yeah. And that's why it's such a big deal over here as well.
0: And obviously the Christmas Carol book has been adapted into many different film versions what are your, what are your favorites
6: muppets yeah <laughs> absolutely oh my god that's You're, the right answer I,
1: I don't know whether we should do films again <laughs> no
6: but we can talk about muppets, <laughs> muppets as well every time
0: but um muppet christmas carol if you haven't seen it is absolutely it's brilliant. incredible michael Caine as scrooge oh uh, yeah
1: that's iconic yeah uh, yeah definitely
0: go and see it but anyway to bring this all back to the University of London, because this is a University of London podcast, right. after all, um, Charles Dickens does have a bit of a relationship with the university. Do you know what that is?
1: No, no. Tell us.
0: Okay. So, as you as you may know, the University of London was founded eighteen thirty six. I should know. Yeah,
1: eighteen thirty six. <laughs> eighteen
0: thirty six. Mm. Um, but that was uh, for what we re- used to refer to as internal study, study in London. And then in 1858, um, the University Act or rather there was a charter issued in 1858, which uh, changed the rules slightly. So people not attending a college at the University of London could sit our examinations. So what that that was essentially the birth of um, our distance learning program that exists now that we've got 52,000 students on. So Charles Dickens. Um, was a massive fan of this. You know, he was he was a social commentator. Yeah. He uh, wrote. If you've read *Christmas Carol* or seen *Christmas Carol*, he talks about the the poor houses and yeah. he's very much for um, social change. So he thought this was brilliant. He thought this was great for uh, the shoemaker, quote unquote, to be able to get their degree. Um, so he actually wrote an article in a um, a magazine called *All the Year Round*, which appeared in 1859. Um, And he referred to the University of London as the English People's University or the People's University, as we now call it.
1: Yeah, we do call it that. And that's from Charles Dickens. That's
0: Charles Dickens. Amazing. So what he actually said, he said, the Oxford Don may smile over his port at a university that will extend her hand and offer a firm grip, even to the young shoemaker who studies in his garret. He may feel a little scornful of a university that, to the poor as to the rich, gives to the man a few opportunities as to the man with many a free chance of obtaining at the cost of hard toil and years of self-denial the name and rank of a scholar
6: oh i've got shivers mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> so there you go oh that is christmas amazing. dickens university of london
1: oh it all ties in it's lovely i know it's almost Do like a bit this of is research there <laughs>
0: <laughs> next tom brady another member of the student experience team talks to joe about the new online societies and clubs hello thanks for having me
1: hey tom tom um I'm going to take this little section and ask you a few questions about it because we've actually mentioned um, Online Societies in our last two podcasts because it's a a great new innovation that we're developing now for um, students. And you've been um, at the forefront of that. And um, I just wanted to ask you, really, what's been the biggest challenge for you to get this uh, project off the ground?
8: So I think the biggest challenge initially is trying to find a way of um, organising, creating societies but for the online context so obviously we're in kind of a unique position as the University of London our students are all around the world um, studying online studying via teaching centers and if you're a campus student then being part of a society is part of your everyday life um, your student experience but trying to translate that into an online context um, and thinking of the ways in which we could manage that was um was something of a challenge. Um, and with the different societies that we've created, um, it it, it kind of challenges us to think about it in different ways as well.
1: Can you just remind um, our listeners what those, um, those first two um, societies are and what you're working on uh, for the next one?
8: Okay, so the first one that we launched um, was uh, the Student Book Club. That launched um, towards the end of October, beginning of November. And um, that's going really well. We've had lots of engagement with that. Um, And then we followed that up quickly with the World Recipes Society. So the idea with that one is that students can um, post their favourite dishes, their favourite recipes from their home countries, really kind of showcasing the diversity of the student body of the University of London Um, and, you know, get to cook some interesting things as well.
1: And is it easy to um, engage with that? Is it easy to put up pictures and things like that?
8: Sure. So the platform allows um, students uh, to upload pictures upload videos if they want to as well um
1: what of them making their food they can do that if yeah like.
8: yeah you can you can um post your kind of your method and as well as um pictures of the finished article so yeah it's good
1: and what about if nobody cooks but they want to showcase what um is the kind of the food of their culture where they live and so on can is that still part of the society
8: yeah sure i mean it, it's not um a prerequisite that you have to necessarily post pictures um we've all had the kind of mixed success rates when cooking things and trying trying new stuff in the kitchen so um yeah it's something it's definitely something that um students can use to whatever extent they want to um the important thing is that you get to kind of meet people from from different places and with different experiences from different backgrounds um so yeah i think that's the key bit
1: and i know that i put a pad thai recipe up there but I know that's probably not authentic so I'd love for somebody to let me know how to do it properly um Looks yeah. good though. and talk talk to me a little bit about the book club um Tom because that was the first society and that was the one that I believe when you were surveying came back as um the a popular choice for a society um what book are they looking at at the moment um
8: so um the first book that we looked at is um the book thief which is an interesting one. Um, it's, uh, I think, it published around fifteen years ago. Maybe okay. I have to check that. Um, it's told from the perspective of death, um, which sounds um, wow. scary and frightening and depressing. But it's actually not. It's actually quite an uplifting book. Um, and you know, students have, have kind of made um, comments to that effect on the on the forum as well. Yes. Um, so the second book that we're that we're um, looking at, um, which we've just moved on to today, is one called *The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks*, which was also um, a popular choice when we allowed students to. Um, vote on what books they would like to read.
1: Oh, I'll check that out. I haven't heard of that one. That's interesting. What's the feedback been like so far, Tom, for the two societies that are up and running from the students?
8: Yeah, so it's been really positive. Um, We've had some nice um, feedback on on Twitter, and on our social media channels about um, students kind of making the most of of the... um, online society provision um, and it seems that those that are using the, the platforms themselves are really getting something out of it as well.
1: And connecting with each other and having a chance. Exactly to, yeah. yeah so
8: getting the chance to to kind of have conversations with people who um, otherwise they might not have the opportunity to.
1: Oh, that's amazing and and talk to us about what you're working on now for the next society.
8: Yeah so the next society is um, Ideally, it's going to be a debate club. Okay. So we know that um, debate clubs are really popular with um, They're campus. a
1: cornerstone of a campus university. yeah exactly. uh, Online society, a uh,
8: uh, society rather, not online society, aren't they? Well, but that's that's kind of that's the interesting thing is how to how to again how to translate that into an online context. So. Um, Yeah, we've been thinking a lot about how to do that, um, and we're hopeful that soon we'll be able to launch with um, a debate club that, again, will be open to all University of London students that they can access via their student portal.
1: So Tom, so with the student involvement, obviously you can just be um, part of the society. But what if you um, had ambitions to maybe have more of a a part to play in how a society runs and and what that society's direction will be going forward? How can students who are interested in that side of things get
8: involved? Sure. So um, the plan with all of our online societies, as would be the case um, in an uh, on-campus context, is that they'll eventually be run and managed by students themselves. Um, so soon and in the course of the next kind of weeks and months, we'll be looking to to kind of recruit, if you like, students to, to take over the, um, the, the management of each um, individual part of the platform. Um, so, uh, you know, we think that this would be good for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, it will give students the chance to, again, meet and interact with 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 their peers, but also they'll be able to develop the kind of skills that you might get um, from taking on a kind of administrative or leadership position in a society, um, which, you know, will be of a great benefit to them, hopefully.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you always, if, if you see that on a CV, you know, someone's taken part in, In um, developing a society, you know they've got a skill set there, which is, um, you know, great to have in the team. Mm. That's brilliant. Thanks so much, Tom, for telling us about that. I think everybody watch this space. The societies are developing and, um, uh, yeah, get involved, be part of it. This is um, something set up for you. So um, please um, look out for the next society or join one that already exists.
0: I hope you've enjoyed this brief introduction to the University of London. If you'd like to hear more, you can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Acast. Just search for the World Class Podcast. We're very pleased to welcome you to the University of London and look forward to supporting you in any way we can during your studies. I'll leave you with a chat we had about the University of London anthem. In our first podcast, um, we spoke about the University of London song, which you can hear now. Um, and Tim mentioned that there was a something called the University of London Songbook, which was published way back in the 1920s, I believe. That's right. Well, Joe has in her hand a copy of the University of London Songbook, which was actually tracked down by one of our listeners, uh, Vicha, who messaged us through Facebook, uh, managed to find a copy online. Um, and I ordered it and it's arrived. And it came from a, a little bookshop um, somewhere near Bath, I believe, in Southwest England.
6: It's a beautiful thing.
1: It's leather bound. Is that leather bound? It looks... I it's, don't know. But didn't you say, Will, it's 93 years old? Yeah, so
0: 1927, that was that was published. Um, so that book's 93 years old. And it's actually full of... Um, well, it's got the University of London song in it. And it's got, um, I don't know, maybe 50 or so other...
1: It's got loads standards of Standards that it. the
0: um, University of London choirs liked singing. They were compiled together to, to produce that.
1: But there are songs in here that you will know, like Cockles and Muscles.
0: There are,
6: we yeah. I think that you one. know that, joke because you grew up in East End <laughs> of London. But she's Pearly Queen. Yeah, no, not well, all no of us.
1: but you would know that one. Um, How does it go? I'm not singing. <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to hear me sing. Um, yeah, there's quite a um, there's some shanty songs. There's some there's some real, really interesting and different songs in this book. Oh, I've just opened a page to King Arthur, which says it's a Dorset song. Yeah. Did you do that on purpose? I that on purpose? <laughs> yeah. Oh my,
0: so my god! god. Dorset. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you set him off. Oh wow! So I've got an, I've got an idea. So what you two don't know is that I'm actually an amateur music producer. I'm not, I'm not at all, oh I've, got, I've got a bit okay. of software on my computer at home, okay. right, and I've digitised the University of London song. So this is, this is the raw version of the University of London song.
1: Did you do this really? Yeah. It's amazing. How can you?
0: So, so we've got a digital copy now of That's the University really cool. of London song, but what this means is that we can we can remix it, right? Oh, so, but yes. what I propose is that each podcast, we, we pick another song from the book and, uh, Some and play was. a little version of it. <laughs> okay. So anyway, before Christmas, um, I started getting into a style of music that... Um, it's called lo-fi or chill hop are you aware of it yes Yes. it's pretty good for like concentration and work and stuff like that so i had a little go at making a a chill hop version of the university of london song i can't wait okay get ready this is it (laughs)
1: I'm so I'm really
0: impressed that you did
6: this. Mm -hmm. I actually really (laughs) like it. It's nice. And you can download that song to
0: to, (laughs) to revise to. (laughs) So yeah, we'll make make a revision playlist. Oh oh my goodness, goodness. that's a great idea. But I'm, I'm no musician, and it's written in some weird time signature that I didn't, I couldn't really do. So I've, my I've done my best. It I've done my
1: best.
0: <laughs> it's great. I say so I'm not a musician, but I do have my grade one guitar. Do you? you
1: are quite good at guitar. Yeah. I've heard you play guitar.